Dads Podcast, and thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Trey Gamage, and today's episode is sponsored by the Gamage Consulting Group. We help middle school principals support student behavior. Today, I have Ms. Janet Ferrone joining me. She's an educational consultant helping schools save and transform lives. She's been in the industry for 25 years and uh, really has a knack for supporting student mental health issues inside of the classroom. Ms. Janet, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. So you've You've got a, a wealth of experience that you've been through. Um, and, and I just want to start really, why mental health in education? Well, you know, my, my background, um, I've been in education for over 35 years. Initially, I was dealing with students with a lot of acting out behavioral issues. And I did that for over 25 years and uh, with the Boston Public Schools. and. Uh, about six years ago, they came to me and they said, you know, we're really seeing an increase in students with more of the, the inward behaviors, not the acting out, the depression, the anxiety, suicidality, students who'd been hospitalized and then were not returning to school. So they asked if I would switch gears and start a program for youth, uh, high school age, with these more emotional mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. And um, as I, I did that six years ago, there were, there were uh, two smaller programs in the city of Boston for that type of population they refer to as emotionally fragile. I tend not to use that, but that was their official designation. And we noticed that we filled up right away. They doubled the size of my program because it was going well and more programs were needed. So the, um, if you turn the news on, if you, you know, are anywhere in the world today, I think you see that there's an increase in, in the issues okay. of mental health. Um, one in five children and youth have a diagnosable emotional or behavioral mental health disorder. Wow. Um, one in 10 have a challenge severe enough that's really impacting their functioning at home and school or the community, and we're talking about diagnosable. There's lots of kids under the radar that mm. you know, are not getting the services. So I think it's really a critical issue. Uh, we see celebrity suicides, uh, the, the show 13 Ways. There's you know, a lot of interest, buzz, um, as well as you know, people who are genuinely suffering from these conditions and not always uh, getting the, the help that they need. Yeah, I, I, I do, the, that's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I do see on one end, I see that there is a, a great recognition of an acknowledgement of mental health and people are starting to understand that this is not just, especially in, I know you've worked with a lot of urban schools, um, especially in a lot of black communities, mental health is something that was oftentimes brushed under the rug but it's starting to become something that's more acknowledged. Um, but like you mentioned, on the other end of that scale, you, it's also something that's being celebrated. When I say celebrate, I mean, like, the, like you said, celebrity suicide and the TV shows are, seem to be doing more celebration of suicide and celebration of depression. Um, while on the other side of the coin, you see that folks are starting to acknowledge that and actually get 
get the help that they need. You you mentioned that one in five children have um, a, a disability or something that can be diagnosed in the classroom. So I, that was what made me curious when you initially started talking um, a minute ago. What what differences did you see in the students that were having general education behavior issues, you know, the classroom management type stuff and um, things like that. And then what was that difference when you switched lanes and started working with people or with students who had uh, diagnosable um, behavior problems? Well, the, the way that my career started in Boston Public Schools was as a director of a substantially separate program for students who had been through general ed, had been in special education classes, but the behavioral issues were really very severe and they needed a separate program. I was in, you had mentioned uh, people of color, students of color. I was in um, most of my career in Roxbury, which is a neighborhood in Boston that is primarily or was primarily people of color. Um, there's a lot of gentrification going on and that's, that's changing, but still predominantly um, African-American, Latino students. Um, so I was working with students who had, um, you know, broken the teacher's arm, set their hair on fire, threw the chairs out the window, broke glass, things like that, things that couldn't be handled mm. within the, the general ed classroom. A lot of um, older students who had been incarcerated wow. came back in. A lot of gang uh, street violence issues. Um, we lost so many kids in the 80s. I was, you know, speaking at funerals, doing things hmm. I never expected to do, um, you know, in my education career. But um, so I was working with a, a really um, specific population. When I made the switch, it was literally night and day. Um, I, like I said, this was, you know, this was kind of a rough school I was in. I'm a, a small white female. I had to go in there kind of, you know, tough. If you were too nice, you'd get walked all over. Yeah. When I started the program for the students with depression, anxiety, suicidality, they were the quiet kids. They were the ones refusing to come into the building. Uh, they were just a, a, a very different presentation. And I had to switch up almost my personality. Mm. I would go in the room and we had a support room. I was, you know, always, I'm all about relationships with kids, connecting with kids. I think, you know, it's a, the, the number one thing that, that I start with. And kids would say to me, Miss, don't yell at me, please. And I realized that my experience, 25 plus years of the, the rough and tough crowd, mm -hmm. didn't, didn't work for that group. Mm. So I would actually, when I went up to the support room, I would stop in the hallway and do some deep breathing to tone myself down. And then I would walk in the room and very nicely say, good morning, how's everyone doing? And uh, it was very, very different. Uh, the, the whole educational philosophy is a lot different. The kids I was dealing with who were on the acting out side of the coin right. really needed structure. They really needed limits. Um, mm -hmm. And that took me a while, you know, as a, in my early twenties, I, you know, was kind of a 
a little more on the hippie side and thinking, you know, peace and love will, will solve it all. These kids were coming from places where they hadn't really experienced the structure and they were craving it. Yeah. So I got used to, um, you know, a, a certain way of doing yeah. things. The students in the depression anxiety program, we called it the PATH program, they, they over-regulated themselves. They needed me to less regulate and give them permission to step out of the box rather than keep themselves so tightly constricted in the box. So we allowed them in the support room to use their cell phones, to listen to music, things that were not, you know, were, were against the rules in the yeah. school. But we felt we had to create with the program that we were running an oasis where they could come and try to leave some of that stress at the door. Yeah. Um, if, if I had tried that with the students in the other program, if I said, you can have your phones out for five minutes, I would have spent the whole class period arguing about putting the phones away. Once they were out, they weren't going away. These no. students, it was, they were thanking me for allowing them to use it. And then most of them were, would say, okay, now I'll, you know, I'm, I'm calm. I can do my work. So it was a, a very, you know, even though it's all under the, the same umbrella, I mean, pretty much you could give most of the students in both programs a diagnosis of depression, mm. but the manifestation was so different from the inward and the outward. Yeah. So uh, is this, I know, um, like you said, the manifestation comes out differently, but are these students that you're talking about, was this the same location? Is it the same demographic, neighborhood, school? Is it the same students in there, or are these a different crop of students? Well, the way that the uh, Boston public schools work is the high schools are all um, in one in one zone. You don't you don't go to high school based on geography. Um, there is definitely some self-selection where you select to go to high school. So the school I was working at, which was Madison Park, it was in um, a much, you know, as I would say, rougher neighborhood, more crime neighborhood. And a lot of students felt comfortable there because that's where they grew up. There also was a whole lot of, um, as sad as it is to say, we knew certain schools would not work for certain kids because there were certain gang affiliations and mm -hmm. certain neighborhoods where it would be hard for you to walk through that neighborhood knowing the neighborhood you came from. Yeah. But the program that I was asked to start was in um, a Boston high school that was a pilot school. So there was a little bit more of a selection process. Students had to do a little more to apply so the school that, that I was at was a little bit different in that it was more of a college achievement group that self-selected to go there. It had um, more uh, regulations in terms of they had to take four years of history, four years of science, where the most schools in Boston was three years and three years. Yeah. But the students that, were, that came to the program actually came through a different route. They came through, all the students I've worked with came through the special education process. So they were coming on IEPs for students with the, the federal category of emotional disturbance. Mm. 
So we were getting citywide kids, but I can also tell you back with the two sides of the coin, the predominant group that I worked with for the acting out behaviors were very high part poverty students exposed to violence, either domestic violence or quite often a father had been killed or a father was incarcerated. The students that came in to the other program were coming from two-parent homes, which in 25 years, I could count on one hand the two-parent home group that I saw. They were higher socioeconomic. There were a f more white kids. There were, were years I would go that I didn't have any white students in my program in the behavioral side, but in the depression anxiety side. So it was it felt very different. It felt like being in a very different demographic, although yeah. I was part of a, a similar school system. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so I am curious, so for some of the students that at the school that you were at before, well, let me ask this first, is the programs that you're running, are those on site? Are they at the high school? Or are these students coming to you? Um, both, both programs that I ran were part of the Boston Public Schools. They were in a school. We interacted as much as possible with the general ed curriculum. The, um, the students that I had in the behavioral program, they, um, they were substantially separate. So it was, we were running, it was called the Yes Alternative Program. It was running like a school within a school with me as the director. But whenever possible, if I could mainstream, if someone was really good in math and I thought they might have a chance, I could handpick the teacher who I knew would you know, be able to, to work with that student. So we had students mainstreamed. We ate lunch in the cafeteria with you know, the, the rest of the school. Um, a lot of my kids were on the sports teams. Um, the, the basketball team would not have really existed if it as they said, if it weren't for Miss Ferrone's bad boys, as they referred to them. Um, so we were completely part of the school community. Gotcha. We really, and, and the same with the other program I was running for the more emotional students, that was an inclusion program. They were heading to general ed classes. So they were definitely part of that school. Uh, the format was we had a support room staffed by a social worker and the students came there one period a day as i was alluding to earlier with a lot of stress reduction we also helped them with monitoring their assignments making sure they didn't get overwhelmed there was a lot of um, perfectionism going on i'm not turning my homework in because it's not perfect and, right. you know, we'd communicate with the teachers and say i know she's smart but i can't get work from her what do i do so we would hands-on with them, go through backpacks, organize them. But at the end of the day, they were responsible for going to uh, either general education or inclusion classes. But as a member, full member of the school community, um, in that case, often they were afraid of the cafeteria. They were afraid of the larger spaces. So we had that room open before school, after school, every period of the day and lunch. And we had a lunch group. We got some donations for a refrigerator or a microwave for the kids who were basically too afraid and too socially anxious to 
go into the cafeteria. But our goal always was to get them out of the confines and, you know, push them to be able, you know, to be in a community, to be part of a community. Yeah. So we would, we would often go to the cafeteria with them or at least walk them down and have them get their lunch, whatever level they were at. And then over the years, we were able to, um, you know, successfully transition kids into much more, you know, independent spaces. Right. Okay. Okay. And so I'm, I'm curious about the impact of, of both of these programs, starting with the initial program. I'm curious as to what kind of diagnosis you may, um, you may think that these students have. I know there's a lot of instances where we may talk about PTSD for like children, people that have experienced these uh, traumatic situations or adverse childhood experiences. What was the impact of your program and what was the goal of the program? Well, the, um, the goal of the program, um, you know, Boston has, has always been at the forefront of education. The first public school is, you know, a few miles from my house here. Um, and they had a commitment to special education long before the, the feds mandated it. In fact, quick, very quick history lesson. When um, in the 80s, Massachusetts had its own law that was so much broader than the federal law that we were putting 22% of students into special education, which was way above the national average of about 12%. Mm. But in Massachusetts, we didn't like categories. So if you were struggling for any reason, you got extra support through special education. But the feds came in and said, hey, wait a minute, we're not reimbursing for that 22%. You guys need to um, rein it in. And now we, we use the uh, federal diagnosis, uh, the federal disability definitions. So the students who are coming into me with a, um, often were, were diagnosed with the oppositional defiant disorder, which mm. I hate that name. Right. <laughs> it just uh, is not something I would use, but that's what they were called. And the goal of the program was basically to graduate them with a high school diploma. Um, that was, you know, why they were there. They were on an IEP that, that called for substantially separate services. We had a clinical coordinator. There was definitely a therapeutic component. Um, we didn't really, you know, it's interesting now um, because there, we didn't use the word ACEs or the acronym ACEs, but we looked at these kids and we knew where they were coming from. We, it was a small program. We knew their families. We knew them intimately. Um, and we knew, you know, who, who was dealing with um, the murder of a brother. We were at the funerals. We were, we were a family. Um, I started that working at that program in 1983. With the advent of Facebook, I have former students contacting me. We have a, a robust communication. I went out with a student. Uh, he took me out for lunch. He just turned 50 years old. Um, so I'm, I, w I was pretty close in age when I started working in my 20s yeah. there because the program went up to age 22. Um, a few weekends ago, I was invited to a baby shower of a, a woman who was not a student in, in uh, my program. Her brother was a student in the, in the program. And his behavior was so unmanageable within the confines of our program in a public school that he, um, the 
the Boston school said that he could not be serviced there. And he was temporarily put on uh, home tutoring until they could find a, a more suitable place. And the family would only agree to it if I would be the home tutor. So I sat in that family's home uh, working with the student and became very close with the family. The young woman who had the baby, uh, she's 33 now, she would stay with me. She was a very tiny, small kid. And as I said, it was a, a, you know, a lot of crime, rough behavior yeah. area. She latched on to me. She would stay with me after school. I would take her places with me. I'd say, Leah, I have to get a haircut. You know, I'll, I'll take you home. Can I come with you to get a haircut? Okay. So I've been part of this family for so long. Um, so it, we made an impact. Kids who got one phone call from jail, we were it. Um, the impact, we measured it. The graduation rate was definitely higher. Um, to be honest, we were happy with students who stayed alive and didn't get incarcerated. I mean, we had a, a bar that people might think was a little low, but if you saw what was happening, that was a measure of success. And then uh, the, the diploma was something that, you know, we really geared everything to. There often was a, a tension between the academic and the therapeutic because these students could have stayed in counseling all day right. um, with what they experienced. But I, you know, I was the academic background. I'm a, a special education administrator, a general educator certified in, as a teacher. And then our clinical coordinator was a social worker, therapist, and we always had to figure out, you know, if we just, you know, address the therapeutic, it was, it was kind of a bottomless pit. And how were they going to pass their classes if they were always out in the reflection room or if they were, you know, in the therapist's office? So, but I've seen such tremendous success. Um, we had one student who was in, this is, I'm not making this figure up, 41 foster homes by the time she was 17 years old in our program. She is um, a college graduate now. She's teaching science in the neighboring state of Rhode Island. I've helped her through her initial uh, getting ready for teaching. Um, I've had students who, I have one student who is um, playing international basketball. Wow. Um, yeah, and um, he, he struggled. He, a lot of the kids had ADHD diagnoses. Um, they had all kinds of diagnoses, but so much of it really was the ACEs and the PTSD um, of what, you know, they were living through. A lot of homeless kids. Um, most kids were not with a biological mom or dad. Uh, uh, there were so many grandparents raising kids that yeah. they actually opened a, um, a housing project in Boston just for the grandparents who are raising their kids. That, that's, hmm. So I feel like the, the anecdotes um, and the, 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 another one of my students, uh, both, both her parents are deceased. She was in a group home. She, it's, it's a kind of a very interesting story. She was a Latina woman. And um, historically, there's been a lot of uh, younger woman, older male boyfriends 
and we had to file. She ran away, was living with um, a man in his 20s when she was 15. So we're mandated reporters to, to file with the Department of Children and Families. Fast forward, oh, maybe 20 years later, she's living with that man, married, two kids, and has a, a, such a successful cake decorating business. I've hired her to do a, a cake for um, a friend for a bridal uh, shower. And she is the best mom. She's, you know, really reflecting on what her life was like growing up. And she had a child um, with special needs and she was very worried about sort of putting him in that pipeline. I went to the IEP meetings with her. I, you know, reviewed the the psychological reports and advised her, you know, what to ask for, what not, what was, you know, so I feel like um, I'm actually in the process of writing a book about the um, a program uh, called We Laughed, We Cried, We Saved Some Lives. And um, mm. every year on my birthday on Facebook, it's I need a box of tissues because kids are basically writing in that, you know, happy birthday if it wasn't for you and all the other people in my program. It's not a one person show. Right. But, you know, I might not, I w they literally say, I wouldn't be alive. I would be in jail. You know, the, the two things we were, which was our baseline, stay alive and stay out of jail. So it, it really worked. The, the people came together. We were a family. We did a lot of team building. We did, you know, we had our arguments, but we modeled for kids that, you know, yeah, we don't always get along, but we hash it out, we deal with it respectfully, and, and you move on as a family. So I think that was, you know, really the key for those students. For sure, for sure. That, that is really special to have. Um, th that's a different kind of thing. You know, I think as I've been talking to more and more educators and have been in education, um, now going on five years myself, I think one of the most special things that you can have or the, the greatest award is just that, having one of your former students come back and, and just acknowledge you or, you, or remember you, because um, it's, a, it's a tough place to be in as a student there. And I, ha I do have to um, just ad admire the work that you've done for so long, 25 plus years, and, and, and looking at um, some of the other things that you've done as, as being a, a gender equity consultant. You've been to New Zealand, you've been to South Korea, you've been to Malaysia doing this work. Um, I see, where is it? Um, you, you introduced Lupita Nyong'o at the 2014 Women's Conference. You've done so much and contributed so many things. I'm going to keep going for a little, one more minute. You're featured in, in ABC World News, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, U.S. News World Report, um, Boston Globe. How, how does the, do these things feel for you to know that you're serving such an underrepresented population and um, just students that, that don't really have a chance. They didn't choose what they were born into or to have these disabilities, but uh, to be able to support them and encourage them to be successful, whatever that means in their life. Well, well, thanks for, um, thanks for all the shout outs. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it's actually been um, 35 plus years. So, um, you know, I've had a, a lot of chance to do this work. I did not intend to go into education. Um, I was a, an early feminist way back when and said, well, I'm not going to be a nurse or a teacher because that's what they expect me to do. And then I graduated college with a liberal arts degree and realized that, hmm, 
I need some money, I need some sort of job. And I started out at a cerebral palsy school for students, uh, you know, physically handicapped as a, a substitute teacher's aide. I think that's about the lowest on the totem pole wow. you can go. But, you know, I was in my early 20s. Um, and I really, the work just resonated with me. I had thought about going into counseling and I watched these kids in the classroom saying like, oh, I don't want to go to that head shrinker. I want to stay in the class. And I felt really early on, I was about 21, um, that I was able to connect with these kids in the classroom. I was always a, I was kind of a problem kid myself. My mom will say the reason I wound up working with that population was because I kind of knew what they were up to because um, I was a good student academically, but I got bored. I, you know, caused a bit of commotion. So I, I, I kind of connected up, but I really felt like I was through academics was reaching kids, making them feel confident that they can do the work and that they are smart. And um, I went back for a master's in education and one of my student teaching placements was, uh, this was when I lived in New York. It was a very similar community to what I've been working in. It was primarily kids of color with behavioral acting out um, issues. And I just felt like I connected up with them. The, the teachers were saying that, you know, they'd had student teachers before, but they used to just give them a run for the money. But somehow I had, you know, gotten broken down the walls and connected up with them. And that, then I just realized like that, those were the population. And there was clearly a part of me saying, um, you know, I, I did a, a regular general ed uh, student teaching in a, a white upper class neighborhood. And it was the worst experience of my life. The kids <laughs> were privileged. They were, you know, I was trying to do hands-on activities. I was going to make candles for Thanksgiving. Like I said, I was a little bit of a hippie child back in yeah. the day. And uh, one kid said to me, oh, my mother will just buy me a better candle. And I said, oh, my God, get me out of here. These kids mm. don't need me. Um, and, you know, there is, there is an element. I'm not sure at the time how aware I was of it. But um, as I said earlier, I'm a white female. I didn't grow up rich. I, you know, grew up very lower working class. But I was afforded privilege mm. by, the, the, by my skin color. When I can work with the students I'm working with, who really have no access, no advocacy, I can make one phone call and turn that family situation around. Wow. Wow. So the, the idea that I wouldn't use that, uh, why wouldn't you do that? Um, the, the baby shower I went to, the mom was crying. She was hugging me. And she said, all these years you have stuck with our family. Um, what you have done for us, um, her, uh, her husband was murdered. He, uh, her ex-husband, the one of the child's, uh, the the young woman's father, um, and they couldn't get the police to investigate. Wow. I, you know, I've been working in with the youth strike task force because of the the kids that I worked with. I can call someone in the police department and say, "Hey, w what the hell? What do you not? You know." Pardon yep. my, my language, but um, no. sometimes you have to speak like that in, yep. in situations. Say, these people deserve justice. What, what do you mean that you haven't gone out to the home to investigate? Um, so the fact that I could do that, it, it seems ridiculous not to, um, mm -hmm. if you could, you know. But it, it's always been my, you know, I've always kind of thought of myself as wanting to give voice to, to those who don't have voices. So yeah. I think that's what 
you know, why people are, you know, keeping in touch with me. And uh, another one of my students uh, started a, um, a little business, uh, custom t-shirts and, and uh, mugs and things. And he had one, um, it said, uh, nicest mean teacher. And I saw it on Facebook and I said to him, Josh, um, who'd you have in mind when you made that mug? And in my mind, I'm thinking me or uh, this other teacher, Helen. And he wrote back exactly our two names, you and Mrs. Waldron. Oh, sorry mm. for using last names. But they, you know, they really, you had to be mean on some yeah. level because the behaviors were so out of control. Yeah. If you were, you know, they, you had to kind of rein it in. But I love that that was his, you know, one of his phrases, like, we knew you were nice, but you had to be mean. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, so I was really chuckling when I saw that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, and and again, I appreciate you know using using your privilege to combat um, discrimination, prejudice, injustice. You know, paying forward um, the opportunities that that you have and and didn't have to earn. You know, and I I feel the same way myself in a lot of ways. Even though I am a, a young black man, I can trace my family history back to the 1860s. Um, I've, I've got a, a father and, and cousins that have been trailblazers and things. So it's it's so important for, for me to help people that look like me and help create those opportunities to grow leading experience. And I, I commend you for doing the same and being an example for so many other people that um, maybe know or didn't know that they can do the same thing with the privilege that uh, people like you and I have. So Miss Janet, as we're, we're closing up here, what, what's something that you want to take away um, or that you want your, our listeners to take away from this episode that we have here right now? Well, I think, you know, as I, I look at education now, um, a lot of the things we were doing now have names like trauma-informed, restorative justice. Um, so I'm, I'm inspired by those types of movements. What I see that's really troubling um, is a lot of the emphasis on the standardized testing and the achievement scores. And I feel like some of it is so misguided. If you're drilling kids, if you're making them stay after for test prep and not dealing with the person as a whole, not building that relationship, not making your school welcoming and inclusive for, for everyone, whether it's skin color, language, um, sexual identity, gender identity, if you're not creating a comfortable space for kids to feel safe, you're not going to see the test scores go up. You can yeah. drill until the cows come home. You may increase dropouts because kids are saying my experience at that school is, is just not, you know, feeding my soul or it's, it, I don't feel safe there. I don't feel welcome. So I feel like it's, it's really misguided that people are, you know, pushing. I, I appreciate the achievement gap where we want, kids to you know have equitable experiences but until you address the the personal as i used to say the personal is political um until we can really make the schools a place where kids feel welcome accepted um then then that's the the baseline to move them forward academically yes ma'am right on right on I, I i appreciate your commitment so much um to what you've been doing where, where can we find you at well, um, I have a website, which is www.feroneconsult.com, F-E-R-O-N-E, 
www.bostonpublicschools.com. Um, I've, I've left the Boston Public Schools um, two years ago in my full-time work, and now I have a consultancy where I work with, um, as you said in the beginning, I work with um, different schools on just the things that I mentioned, uh, creating more safe and welcoming uh, communities, particularly for students with, you know, my specialty is the mental health and behavioral. Um, I also have a background in autism, but um, so it's www.ferroneconsult.com. That's perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your busy day, and I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Well, thank you so much. It's really um, a pleasure. I, I don't know you personally, but um, I can you know, see from uh, information about you that we definitely uh, share similar philosophies. So it's been terrific having a conversation with you. And I thank you for taking the time to do the, the podcast and get ideas out to uh, educators and the, the public. So thanks so much for your work. Oh, thank you so much. I, I will definitely um, continue to be a bug in your ear and, and might ask you some questions or share some information with you down the road uh, from here on out as well. So thank you for joining us and, and thank you for listening also to the Dash podcast. And this episode, again, is sponsored by the Gamers Consulting Group. We help middle school principals support student behavior. For more information about that, you can visit my website. That is tradegamers.com and go to the shop page for more information. We will see you next time. And if you want some more of the podcast, I almost forgot, you can subscribe and listen to the Dash Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and SoundCloud now. This is The Dash.